Yo, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the world famous Sweet Bee Studios, Sistine Chapel of Podcast Studios. I'm your host, Quentin, aka Q Dog, aka the man with the knowledge, aka the Pop Tart King, <laughs> the Pop Tart King of the South. <laughs> what to do, baby? Listen, dude, wild stuff, man. Wild stuff going on these days in baseball, dude. I'll tell you what, man. This uh, baseball never gets old for me, dude. I could. I could watch so much baseball, you know, I was just turned into a baseball, right? Like, I'm probably, like, on, you know, I could get fired from my job any day because I watch so much baseball. I mean, you know these things, man, but it's anything, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice my job so I can research as much baseball so I can come on here on this podcast and talk all the baseball so everybody can hear me. Yeah, man, I'm willing to sacrifice it, dude. Listen, I'm like Rocky Balboa, man. You know, fighting Ivan Drago, dude, I'll, I'll sacrifice my life for it, man. I'll take a punch to join the Soviet Union and the American people in peace and harmony uh, through my fist, you know, but in this case, it's through baseball, dude. So wild stuff happened, man. Check this out, dude. So my Cubs are getting beat 11 to nothing. What's new? <laughs> Listen, yo, give me a beer. Yo, more beer. Yeah, I'm like Will Ferrell when he's like, ma, me loaf. You know what I mean? I'm like, ma, Keystone Light. You know, <laughs> I need 10 of them. <laughs> no, I need 11 of them because it's one for each run that the Cubs are down right now. And if it gets any worse than 11 to nothing in the six, we're in trouble. But Bryce Harper right now in this game, he's three for three with two home runs, three RBIs, and not a single strikeout. And, and just after the Phillies fired their hitting coach and brought in Charlie Manuel, 75 years old of just pure genius. Listen, I'll tell you this right now. There aren't. There aren't enough old guys in baseball, dude. People want to hire their Rocco Baldellis and like their cool Joe Maddens with like their hair and their sunglasses, dude. You know what I mean? You ever see Joe Madden like post conference? You know, like in a press conference after a game, and he's got like his spiky hair and his black rim glasses. And Gabe Kapler, he's like tan and fit and doesn't look like he's had a carb since like 1982. And it's disgusting, okay, Gabe? Screw you, man. You can just be in shape all day. But to me, that's not a baseball guy, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, Charlie Manuel? Yo, Charlie Manuel looks curmudgeon as can be. <laughs> he looks just mad, man. He looks just like a 75-year-old guy who's just ready to flip someone off in traffic or, like, yell at a kid or something, you know, for being in his lawn, man. Just a grumpy dude. But those sometimes, man, those are the guys that you need for baseball, man. Sometimes you just want the Don Zimmer type who has, like, a pretty good gut, you know? I don't know if I was a professional baseball player and I had a manager that looked like Gabe Kapler or Joe Madden, yo, I don't think I would trust those guys. Because if you got time to, like, go to the gym and, like, be cool, like, why is your life not run by baseball? Like, if you don't have a gut... If you don't have a 40-inch waist or bigger, don't talk to me about baseball, right? I'm working on mine. You know, listen, you know I'm eating chicken wings and pizza and Pop-Tarts all day getting ready for baseball, man. You think I'm going to the gym right now? No, I'm in front of my computer at 9.45 on a Wednesday night watching baseball and reading about baseball. My team, win or lose, we booze. I don't care, right? That's the life I live. So if I'm looking at a baseball coach like Gabe Kapler, like what's he going to show me? But you bring in Charlie Manuel, who consistently looks like someone just kicked him in the gut and he's just mad, right? He, Dude, Charlie Manuel consistently looks like someone just stole the CD player out of his car and he's just like, 
idiots, pull your pants up. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's just so mad. And what, what's happened right now? Listen, I can't make this up. Just as magical as baseball is right now, is Bryce Harper three for three with two home runs? And is the curmudgeon Charlie Manuel in the dugout? I mean, both of those things are true. Do you think that this is a coincidence? No. No. So, listen, do the Cubs need to maybe get rid of Joe Madden at the end of the year? Maybe. Could Gabe Kapler, you know, stand to gain about 50 pounds? Possibly. Joe Girardi, 100%. Joe Girardi would be a great manager if he had a gut. If he was a little fat, you know, like that Lou Pinella, Don Zimmer gut. That's what you got to have, man. And you don't have to chew red, man. We understand. Rest in peace, Tony Gwynn. Those things aren't very good for a guy. But, like... I don't know, man. Put a bunch of gum in your mouth or some seeds or something like that because I need to know when you come out of the dugout and start yelling at the umpire, stuff needs to fly out of your mouth. So put some seeds in your mouth. Get hyped up, man. Let's get a little wild and start yelling at some people. Let's get after this stuff, dude. <laughs> That's what's up, man. Okay, let's... Um, man, I don't even know what to talk about next, dude. Do you believe that there were some police officers in Connecticut, dude, they uh, they pulled a gun on Brian Cashman, Yankees GM. Pulled a gun on Brian Cashman because Brian Cashman had reported his car stolen, right? And but he but he found his car abandoned in the Bronx, so he had um I guess called the police and let them know that hey man, like I found my car, but like the, not all of the police officers, not all the police stations had it on record that the car was safe and sound with the owner. So the cops like saw the vehicle and ran the license plate and they pulled Brian Cashman over, pulled guns on him. They released the cop cam footage on the internet. I just watched it, right? And so the cops, they're like, this car's reported stolen. And it's like a really nice, I think it was like a Jeep or something, which is weird because I don't know why Brian Cashman's like driving a Jeep. Like I could afford a Jeep, bro. Like you need a DeLorean or like a Mercilago, like a Lamborghini Mercilago, right? Like why are you not driving a Mercilago, dude? That's like Warren Buffett driving a Geo Metro, kid. Get out of here, dude. But either way, so they're like pulling the guns on him, right? And they're like, sir, step away from the car. So like he's stepping away from the car. They're like, put your hands up and walk backwards. And it's like, okay, guns are drawn, dude. And so they're like processing his paperwork. They're asking, they're at, they don't know who Brian Cashman is yet, right? They haven't asked him his name. They're just like running the plates. They're like, they... They pull Brian Cashman away from the car. Then they're they're evaluating the car, right? And they're like, okay, car's clean, you know? So there's no contraband in it, right? So, which would have been really funny if they found like a bowl in Brian Cashman's car because he'd be like smoking pot, you know, like weed and Fritos. Because, I mean, if I got pulled over, I mean, chances are there's some pretty weird stuff in my car, you know? Like they would just be like, yo, man, why is there an empty milk jug in your car? Like, you're just drinking a gallon of milk while you drive? Like, yeah, I got thirsty, bro. Like, what do you want me to do, man? Like, I get the munchies. Like, I love more than anything, I love car snacks. I consistently carry in my car a box of oatmeal cream pies, and I keep them in the passenger seat floorboard, and then when I want an oatmeal cream pie because I'm stuck in traffic, hey, guess who has car snacks? I have car snacks, and they're oatmeal cream pies, and I love them, but... Either way, Cashman's car was clear. So get this, dude. They're like, <laughs> the cop, like, so they walk Brian to the car because they're like, sir, where's your ID? And Brian's like, it's in my car. So he's going to get it. And then the cop goes, you look familiar. <laughs> and Brian goes, yeah, I'm the GM of the Yankees. And he goes, oh, that's what I thought. I remember seeing you at the bagel shop. <laughs> and like, just how wild would that be? Like, if you just pulled a gun on someone that was just unbelievably famous in the Northeast, like your neck of the woods. 
I don't know how this cop had no idea who Brian Cashman is. Like, there are very few GMs in Major League Baseball that, like, a fan should know. And you basically have Theo Epstein, Brian Cashman. That's it, man. Those are the only two that most people, that everyone in the world would probably recognize who's ever watched sports in your life. And I just thought it was funny that he was like, sir, you look familiar. You know, like, <laughs> like yep, I'm pretty much the GM, man. Like, this is a big deal right now, and you just pulled a gun on me, dude. So... If anything goes wrong with the Yankee season, you know, Brian Cashman didn't look shook, but, you know, I've never had to pull the gun on me, man. If I did, I hope they wouldn't record it because I would probably pee my pants and that would just be embarrassing because, like, my family would make fun of me. You know, could you imagine if I got pulled over and a gun was pulled on me and then they released the body cam footage, you know? Like, my friends and family would roast me. Big time. They'd be like, yo, Quentin, I saw your body cam footage, man. You better put a Pampers on next time. <laughs> It'd just be so bad. And that's definitely what would happen. You know what I'm saying? But uh, bad news. Okay, let's talk. I guess talk a little bit of baseball here. Let's play some intro music. We'll get some baseball. All right, let's get to some more important stuff. We'll get to some serious stuff. So the anniversary of the 1994 Major League Baseball strike was like three days ago. It was August 11th, and the last pitch thrown on August 11th before the strike was a complete game that Randy Johnson threw. I think he struck out the last batter, and then the season was over. And I just – when that happened in 94, right, so I was uh, was 10 – years old and I don't like I don't remember a ton of it like I don't remember being a kid and thinking to myself like oh my gosh like this is the end of the world as odd as it sounds like when I was a kid like I watched baseball and then when it was gone I I mean I guess I just sort of accepted it as being gone and kind of just like kept playing summer baseball you know what I mean um I mean, I, I remember when it happened, you know, and I remember watching sports internet happening, but, you know, other than that, like, I don't tr- truly, like, remember a whole lot of it, I guess, because I was 10 years old, so I love, I found a lot of great articles on the MLB strike that sort of go into, like, the thoughts and the feelings that, like, we're going into the strike, like, the processes, a lot of, like, player mentality and owner mentality, and really, like, it, it's a great story, man. I love, I mean, it's not a great story in the sense that we had a strike, but these are very great articles to read because 1994 was such a such a beautiful season, man, for the things that were happening with, like, the Montreal Expos, Matt Williams, and Tony Gwynn. You know, those are usually the three storylines that people talk about, but, you know, the Cleveland Indians that year had a phenomenal team, and, uh, you know, a lot of good stuff happened that way. So one of the first things, like, I sort of wanted to get into was, you know, like the Tony Gwynn 400 story, and, you know, could he have really hit 400? What was the situation with that? Like, how close was he? How was he feeling? And things like that, and... As it stands, so the strike had been planned, I think, for 
two weeks. So I think it was about a two-week notice where players said that midnight, as soon as midnight hit on August 12th was here, that the strike was going to happen and the players were going to strike. And, you know, the sort of like on a high level, what the Major League Baseball players were striking for was that the owners wanted a salary cap. And it seemed that the owners wanted to sort of slow down the amount of money that Major League Baseball players were making. And a salary cap was the way that they were going to do it. And it seems that the salary cap was introduced um, sort of under the disguise of competitive balance, right? So it's it's definitely not like the luxury tax that we have now, but the luxury tax that we have now was sort of like the compromise to the owners wanting a salary cap and the players not wanting a salary cap, right? Because the luxury tax really isn't a hard cap. But what we're finding out right now is, like, right at this point, it's sort of acting like a hard cap because data shows that, you know, as soon as guys get over, like, 32, 33, 34, you know, things like that, their production starts to slow down. So they're not truly worth, like, the big bucks. Like, your Albert Pujols, your Robbie Cano's and stuff like that. Like those guys just, you know, aren't worth the money that they're getting paid. So as it sits right now, it's it's sort of more, looking more like a hard cap because teams are refusing to go over the luxury tax for a 34-year-old guy because it doesn't make sense because the return's just not there for the amount of taxes that you'll have to pay. But needless to say, oh, excuse me, I just had a bowl of Cocoa Pebbles. I'm not going to cut that out because I'm not that good at GarageBand, and I kind of just burped. I don't know if you heard it or not, but whatever. <laughs> so it was sort of like that was the situation, right? And players were like, we're not even going to talk if there's a salary cap on the table. It's not going to work for us, and we don't want it because, and, and you know, sort of the reason why players had this unifying front, what sort of goes back to like the Kurt Flood days, of players not having a lot of freedoms to, you know, be paid what they should, you know, and then with like the reserve clause, they weren't allowed to like enter free agency and actually better their pay and better their situations as far as, you know, how much money they made and what teams they played for and stuff like that. And I can get into that in a little bit, but again, like with the Tony Gwynn situation, I was like, man, I really kind of want to look into this because, you know, like, could he have really batted 400 or, or, or do we really just say that because there's just so much mystery behind the season and it turns into like this big tall tale of like, oh, like he could have done it, right? Um, so when they had announced that they were going to strike and that date would be August 12th, there were like about however, I think the last series that the San Diego Padres were going to play was against the Houston Astros. And Tony Gwynn needed to go 9 for 12 to bat 400 and if he went 9 for 12 he would have batted I believe 401 and he fell three hits short of 400 so as it sat with his ending season average in 1994 he batted 394 and with three more hits he would have batted 400 I might have it written down somewhere okay in yeah in 1994 Tony Gwynn had 165 hits and 419 at bats and if he had 168 hits in those 419 at bats, he would have batted four home. Uh, he would have batted 401, right? And one of the things I found so interesting that I never knew about Tony Gwynn's 1994 season is that whole entire season, save a couple bats with lefties that he worried were gonna jam him because he didn't want to break the bat. Um, 
But basically, the whole entire year of 1994, he used one single baseball bat. And he named the bat the Seven Grains of Pain. And I, I was just so intrigued by that immediately because it just sort of added to like the lore of, you know, Tony Gwynn's story in 1994 with him batting 400. And using one baseball bat the whole time, that to me seems just unbelievable because, I mean, I, I, guys break baseball bats all the time. And this guy, I mean, folks say like in 1994, Tony Gwynn was barreling baseballs so often and so easily that that was a lot of the reason why that his batting average was so high so late in the season and everything he hit just you know found the barrel and found a hole and that kind of goes to show you that you know people weren't just saying that to be nice to Tony Gwynn and sort of just you know adding all this hype around a season that never was because, you know, sort of what we see with Tony Gwynn is like, well, how does a guy only use one baseball bat the whole entire season and not break it? And a lot of that is really he wasn't getting jammed up. And he was, you know, he was finding the ball. And on top of that, Tony Gwynn was getting better as the season went. So here's sort of how Tony Gwynn's season's looking, right? So when I was kind of digging into this, I just wanted to know, like, okay, it's August 11th. So when the strike ended, then I would say... You got like 50 games left, 50 games left in the season, probably something like that. Yeah, give or take 50 ish games, maybe 55, 53, whatever. Right. And as it turns out, like Tony Gwynn was actually having a very consistent year with the high batting average and was getting a little bit hotter as the season went on. So it looks like Tony Gwynn, his batting average never dipped below 376 after April. And if you look at June or July, by that point, his batting average had never dipped below 382. So Tony Gwynn didn't have like an inflated batting average because he went on like a hot streak of batting like 430 or something like that, right? Which sort of what you saw, no disrespect, but sort of what you saw with Cody Bellinger this year or like Tim Anderson. Those guys carried really high batting averages for a while. Then they, they sort of go back down. Well, Tony Gwynn's was actually the opposite, right? So Tony came out of the gate not batting lower than 376. And then as the season went on, he was like getting better. So the Padres had 24 home games left on the schedule and 21 road games. So, oh crap, that's how many games they had left. 24, 34, 45, only, oh, only 45 games left. Okay. Tony Gwynn was batting 403 at home that season compared to 387 on the road. Um, and on top of that, he had like a super high BABIP, which sort of speaks to Tony just getting the barrel on the ball really well at that point. And it looks like, yeah, yeah, so that, I mean, Tony Gwynn's career batting average on balls in play was 341, but this year was 389, and a lot of that was because he was barreling balls so well. And it's, again, sort of to speak to like Tony Gwynn just getting better as the season went on, um, he was batting 376. June 8th, okay, and then proceeded to go 85 for 209 over the next two months, so from June 8th to like August 8th, from basically June 8th to the end of the year, he was putting up a 407 batting average, so that boosted him up to 392, so he went from 376 to 392 in like the dog days of summer, 
all of June and all of July. He he boosted his batting average uh, 16 points, which was unbelievably wild. And something that's more interesting here, let me find the quote real quick. But it was from Barry Larkin. So somebody asked Barry Larkin, like, why Tony Gwynn was such a good hitter and how all these hits were going through here. Let me find the quote real fast. Okay, this is a quote that I found. So it was from Brad Ausmus, right? And he played with Tony Gwynn from 1993 to 1996. So they were teammates in 1994. And he'd run into Barry Larkin one day, and I think it was just like on the field or something like that. And Brad said he asked Barry, he was like, hey, man, why does Tony Gwynn always get these hits that bounce through the infield when everyone else seems like they get thrown out, right? And a lot of what you hear about Tony Gwynn is sort of like, Whatever, like, how impressive with that? All he did was just hit singles. Like, we don't want guys that hit singles. We don't really want guys that hit singles right now. And it's sort of like what Tony Gwynn did then. Like, wouldn't really play very well now because of all the data we have and defensive shifts, right? If, if you're a ground ball guy, we can sort of predict, like, where you're going to hit that ball at because, you know, we have we have all the data, right, that tells us where we're going to put the ball at. But Tony Gwynn had the ability to barrel the ball and really put it anywhere on the field just sort of based on where the pitch was, right? So it was kind of just like he would go with the flow, you know, barrel that ball. And, you know, if the pitch was high and outside, you know, it might go opposite field. If the pitch, you know, got sort of the inner part of the plate, you know, he might pull that ball. But... That's what Brad Ausmus asked Barry Larkin. He goes, dude, like everyone hits ground balls and you ground out. Tony never grounds out. And this is what Barry Larkin said. Barry said that Tony's bat comes from behind his body and through the strike zone so quickly, infielders don't get that extra half step on the ball. I don't know why I said extra. He so hold on. Let me start over, right? So Here's what Barry Larkin said. Barry said that Tony's bat comes from behind his body and that his bat comes through the strike zone so quickly that infielders don't get that extra half step on the ball, right? So you know when you're playing like in the field or the outfield or whatever and like you can see the pitch and you can see like what the batter is about to swing at it or whatever and you can sort of get a first step because you can just sense and feel and you can see like where that ball is going to go before it's actually hit, right? And that's what Barry Larkin is saying here, right? Like most infielders, this is what Barry said. He goes, most infielders have the ability to read the body or the bat when it comes off the ball. But with Tony, it's so late you can't do that. Tony Gwynn had such a quick bat and that bat would stay behind its, his body and he could get through the zone so quickly, which means he could see the pitch for longer because he had such a quick bat and because of that reason infielders couldn't get that first step to anticipate where the ball went. So Tony Gwynn wasn't just a good contact ground ball hitter, but he had an exceptionally fast bat that afforded him the ability to just see the ball longer. And he could really see what was coming in, right? And years later, I think it was Brad Ausmus, or I don't know who it was, but years later, Tony Gwynn was asked about that season and Tony Gwynn said, just as serious as can be, he goes, I, I think I would have hit 400. And anyone saw him play said that they think that he would have hit 400 as well. And it was almost just like that was a prime year for Tony. You know, Tony Gwynn had other years, but I don't think he had ever had 390 batting averages in August or anything like that. Like he had multiple seasons where he was batting 370, but it was just that year was different for him. So that season in 1994, Tony Gwynn was 34 years old. 
so that's probably like a pretty good prime spot for him. So if you look, Tony Tony Gwynn's batting average is like kind of, and so in 1994, he was 34 and he batted 394. The next season, he batted 368. Then the next season, he batted 353. And then the next season, he batted 372. So those were the best four years in a row uh, from like a batting average perspective, just looking at batting average that Tony Gwynn ever had in his career. And it was almost like that age, even even the season before his age 34 season when he hit 394, the season before the strike, he hit 358, which was unbelievably wild. So Tony Gwynn was in his peak. And because his bat was just so rare, it's not just Tony that thinks he would have hit 400. Most of the guys that played with him said that he probably would have hit 400. And I really don't believe that they say that because... It's just a fun thing to speculate and a fun thing to say. I think they say it because they really meant it. And, you know, when you look at Barry Larkin's explanation on how Tony Gwynn was hitting, and then you look at Tony Gwynn's, you know, exceptionally high Babbitt for his career, and then when you look at, you know, his batting average on balls in play during the 1994 season, yeah, it was about 40 points higher, but it was consistently that high. You know, a lot of times in baseball these days, you'll see guys with a high BABIP like in April, and you see a high batting average, and we can naturally predict a regression because, you know, guys just can't hold that sort of BABIP. But Tony Gwynn, you know, there, there wasn't, there's no sign of any luck in his BABIP, right? When I say BABIP, I mean batting average on balls in place. So that's B-A-B-I-P. There, there's no sign of any sort of luck in his batting average on balls in play. There was just nothing but consistency. And, you know, things always get hard when, you know, baseball players are going down the stretch chasing a record. You know, Roger Maris said that when he was, you know, in 1961, when he was going for the home run record and trying to beat Babe Ruth's 60 home runs, he said like that back half of the season was so unbelievably stressful it's like he wasn't even having fun and he couldn't wait for it to get over because, you know, when you have that whole spotlight on you and you play for the New York Yankees, like those just aren't easy things, right? And plus there was a lot of, I feel like negativity around it because in 1961, I believe was the first season with the expanded schedule where, you know, we pay we play 162 games now and I think that 1961 was the first season for 162 games. And before that, I think it was 154. And that's, you know, that was the type of season that Babe Ruth hit his 60 home runs in or whatever. And with Tony Gwynn, it's been a few years since I watched his uh, baseball documentary that was on MLB Network. And to, to, to listen to Barry Larkin's comments about how he hit the ball, to look at Tony Gwynn and recognize that he only used one baseball bat that whole entire season to look at his BABIP and to also just evaluate his stats in general to where like you don't really see any luck in it. And then add that with the fact that he was just getting better and getting stronger as the season went on. I think that when you look at Tony Gwynn getting better as the season went on, right, I think that speaks to his personality. And if you watch that Tony Gwynn, Mr. Padre documentary, it premiered on MLB Network, I think last season, but it might've been the year before. And you look at Tony Gwynn's personality, he was just this eternally optimistic, happy, fun guy. And it's almost as if his personality would have been built 
for a moment like this, a, you know, a very meaningful moment where baseball history is on the line. And it's like a guy like Tony Gwynn, you know, could take that stress. And, you know, I don't know that it actually would even be stress. I think it would just be fun because Tony Gwynn just brought joy to the game. He was always smiling. He brought joy to everyone he was around. He was a student of hitting, you know what I mean? Him and Ted Williams had like a super close relationship and he didn't, you know, a lot of guys like, like Barry Bonds, right? Barry Bonds wanted to break the home run record. And I feel like a lot of that was like driven by jealousy, right? And ego. And when you look at Tony Gwynn, I don't think anything Tony Gwynn did was driven by jealousy or driven by ego, right? I think Tony Gwynn wanted to be the best hitter of course, right? Because you don't just bat 394 in a season and not really care. Tony Gwynn cared about hitting, but it's almost as if Tony Gwynn, when he hit, like he came from a place of love and he came from a place of fun and he came from a place of joy, right? And in that season, there was one particular moment of the 1994 season. I believe it was, remember when I said earlier in this podcast that the Padres entered a three-game series against the Houston Astros, and Tony Gwynn needed to go 9 for 12. Well, I don't remember which game it was, but it was one of those games in that three-game series that Tony Gwynn was coming up to the plate, and I believe there were runners on first and second. And the Padres manager at that time, ah, for the life of me, I don't remember. I'll have to look it up. And Tony Gwynn looked at his manager and was like, hey, like, before he walked up to the plate, so because he was on deck, and Tony Gwynn looked at his manager, and he was like, hey, do you want me to bunt these guys over? And Tony Gwynn's manager was like, are you kidding me? Like, we're trying to get you up to 400. What do you mean you want to bunt the guys over? You need to get a hit, man. And it was in that situation where you can look that Tony Gwynn needs to go 9 for 12 to bat 400, and he knows it, but because... There were runners on first and second with nobody out, and the Padres were down by like one or two runs. Tony Gwynn, in the midst of pursuing the first 400 batting average since Ted Williams did it in, uh, was it 1941 maybe? I don't know. You'll have to Google that one. I don't know if that's right or not. In the midst of that, right, this amazing record chase, he looks at his manager and says, hey, do you want me to bunt these hitters over because we need to score a run? Do you want me to lay down a bunt? And the manager's like, no, go up there and hit, man. And Tony Gwynn went up there and hit, and, you know, he grounded and do a double play. But to look at that moment and to see Tony Gwynn's selflessness in that situation, that right there on top of all these other things tell us, man, that that's how Tony played the game, right? And it's because that Tony wasn't driven by ego, that Tony wasn't driven by selfishness, that well, just his joyous personality and just true love for the game is why many people believe he would have done it. And it's sort of why, like, I believe those people were right that he could have truly hit 400 in that season, man. And honestly, because he didn't, you know, I, I, I don't think there's a person in the world that looks at Tony Gwynn as any less than anything, right? Because he didn't bat 400, but it was a 394 batting average. And, that's not any sort of failure to Tony Gwynn. Nothing nothing is taken away from Tony Gwynn because he did not bat 400. Not, not a thing, man. Not a thing at all. And I think a lot of that is just because 
people saw the way he played the game and saw his like attitude and his energy, and that just meant so much to the fans of his and to the teams that he played on and things like that. And I think that's why he was able just to rest so easy, you know, after that season and not really hold any resentment towards the situation because I think he just, you know, knew that like his career and his life were just like meant for bigger and better things. And ultimately, you can safely say with confidence that Tony Gwynn was much bigger than a 400 batting average. And one last thing regarding Tony Gwynn, his baseball bat that he used for the 1994 season, the seven grains of pain. He took that bat to spring training in 1995, and during a batting practice session on a backfield, he broke the seven grains of pain. And after he broke it, he said he almost cried. <laughs> and that's, I feel like, the passion of Tony Gwynn and hitting a baseball, man. Just as simple as that, you know, and you go to Tony Gwynn's baseball reference page and look at a 62.9 war. Hold on, that's just a guess. His war was actually, crap, 69.2. And, you know, it, it, Tony Gwynn doesn't have 100 war, right? Um, Tony Gwynn hit 136 career home runs, but he had 338 batting average, you know. And in a sport where, you know, there aren't really a lot of singles hit, I you know, Tony Gwynn gets a lot of respect, and Tony Gwynn should get a lot of respect from, you know, baseball fans, now, you know, young kids, old dudes, whatever, whoever you are, right? And, you know, when it comes down to it, as far as just putting the barrel of the bat on a baseball and getting on base and getting a hit, Tony Gwynn was one of the absolute best dudes to do it, man. You cannot deny that. So uh, rest in peace, Tony Gwynn. Rest in peace, the seven grains of pain. We'll go ahead and end this episode here. Um, I think this episode and the next two will sort of be just kind of unpacking things that happened around the major league baseball strike in 1994 just to kind of sort of just have some uh, nostalgic fun with the whole situation unpack the things that happened a lot of the stories maybe that we don't hear a lot about like tony Gwynn's baseball bat and things like that so we'll go into here thanks for tuning to the podcast thanks for listening we'll get uh this episode up now and hopefully get uh, a couple more up soon so take care guys thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time